This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Dow News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Let's address our next topic, which is playing out in real time in Ontario today. Labour strife that has been brewing for weeks in Ontario has come to a head this week and today. Education workers like educational assistants, custodians and other support staff announced their intention to strike over the weekend. In response, the government introduced back-to-work legislation and the mandating of a contract that was passed yesterday. Premier Doug Ford says the legislation is all about the kids. We're making sure that the students stay in class. I'm going to repeat that. They're going to stay in class. We want parents to know that we're doing everything we can to make sure students don't miss one single day in class. Let's bring in Federal Justice Minister David Lemery, offering up his thoughts on the province using the notwithstanding clause to keep the legislation out of the courts. The use of the notwithstanding clause is very serious. It de facto means that people's rights are being uh, infringed and it's being justified using the notwithstanding clause. And using it preemptively is exceedingly problematic. It cuts off both political debate and judicial scrutiny. Canadian Union of Public Employees representative Laura Walton says the province is negotiating in bad faith. If this was really about you know, preventing the strike and having those conversations, you don't come in and tell somebody that, you know, we're going to legislate you. You come in and you bring an offer and you work on this. So I'd run the clock out for the rest of the hour if I talked about all the ways in which this is manifesting today in Ontario, but numerous school boards have either closed schools today or moved to remote models or some hybrid of the two. Again, we'd be here all day if I tried to explain to you all the different boards and all the different machinations. This is such a massive story that it jumped out to all of us. Michelle and I talked about it on Monday in her segment. But Joeda, you sent the first email in this email chain. So how should we shape this conversation? Um, There's so many things to pull apart, as you noted. There's clearly two sides, as is always the case in bargaining. And it feels like they start out with very different demands. And the question really becomes, can they ever meet in the middle? Then, of course, we've got the specter of the notwithstanding clause and what the impact on all of this means for parents and students. I think it's very interesting if you just examine the rhetoric where you've got Doug Ford saying this is about the kids. And previous to that, we've heard in the media, for example, saying that parents are stuck in the middle. So it's not just about uh, the two uh, sides of the bargaining table. Clearly, this is a story that reverberates uh, not just with uh, with the the union and its members and the school board and the government of Ontario, but with ordinary people, students and and their parents. And also one that I think has repercussions beyond Ontario because of the use of the notwithstanding clause Mm -hmm. and what sort of a precedent it might set up for labor negotiations and dispute resolution moving forward. Yeah, we're going to explore how the Constitution is getting kicked around like a soccer ball a little bit over the course of these next two segments. But Michelle, let's start with the strife itself. Did it appear to be inevitable when we're talking about a union asking for an 11% pay raise and the province countering at 1.5 and 2.5%? 
Yeah, there's a couple of dimensions to this. Yes, I would say that's definitely a big factor. The other one, too, is the historically contentious relationship between this government in particular and all of the education unions. But in fairness to the institution, uh, it's worth noting that this is always a fraught topic, no matter which government is in power, which party is holding the reins. Um, labor negotiations when it, with the education unions is never quite a straightforward process. <laughs> that said, uh, the temperature is a little higher with these particular talks and with these particular players in the mix. And I think, yeah, you're talking about a huge, huge gap in wages. They were asking for, like you said, a nearly 12% increase. Uh, they argue these are the lowest paid education workers in the province, and as such, they need to be compensated because their wages have fallen behind. Even the, the government's, quote, compromise position is to offer at most a raise of 2.5% for those making 43000 or lower. Mm -hmm. So they were hugely far apart on these issues, for sure. And uh, <clears throat> before we even talk about the notwithstanding clause and the implications for big labor nationally and that I'm with Joita and that's my big uh, area of focus for this particular story but it's worth noting that QP is usually the first of four education unions to have to bargain with the government so uh, <laughs> I don't think we're anywhere near done with this one because the teachers have not even begun the process. Th that's right all all four of the major unions in Ontario in regards to the education are going to be heading to the bargaining table within the next 12 months so mm -hmm. the, so this yeah. is going to be an ongoing issue um, I have to say as some, and QP is historically is not even the hardest one as, for them. As so like, someone yeah. who came here from Quebec and likes a lot of things about living in Ontario, the relationship between the government and the teachers, my goodness, <laughs> it is so, so fractious. It's unbelievable to me how yeah. fractious. Like there's no other province in the entire country that has this fractious relationship between their education workers and their teachers and the province, whether it was the liberal government or whether it was the PCs. Holy smokes, do they not get along. Joita, reflect for me on the gap here in the demands being made and what the government is offering. Well, uh, sorry, sorry for stating the obvious. It is a massive gap, but it's actually not a surprising turn of events. We know that ordinary people are under tremendous inflationary pressure right now. Um, and so their union is doing what it always does, which is representing its members and responding to the tremendous increase in the cost of living. We also know from the union that their members haven't received a proper raise in a very long time. So mm -hmm. the average mm -hmm. wage for a educational assistant, for example, and the workers that they're representing falls around $18.75 in Toronto anyway the living wage is about $22. So they've always been making, they've always been underpaid for a very long time. And in part, this increase that they're asking for, the 11%, is a way to make up for the fact that they've been underpaid and also to respond to the, uh, the cost of living pressure that we're all under right now. We know that inflation is sitting at 6%, 7%. It's been hovering around that mark for months now. And there's no suggestion that that number that in the, for inflation is going to go down. Um, but also, apart from the fact that there's a genuine need that the union believes it's fulfilling, there's also a tactic here. I mean, that's what negotiations are. You yes, come in and you say, you have demands. You have demands. Yeah. I'm going to come in and, you know, you come in with 11% and the other side comes in with one 2.5. Then you, you know, talk to each other and maybe you meet in the middle and you give them 7% or something. I don't know. But that's clearly not happening in this instance because one of the things that became evident is that um, is that people just didn't talk. I mean, that's why the mediator 
put an end to the sessions yesterday afternoon because the two sides were so far apart. But just bear in mind that, um, you know, when we think about these workers who are doing critical work in our classrooms, between um, two, uh, 2012 and 2021, education workers' salaries went up by 8.7%, but inflation has actually gone up by 17.8% mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. same window. So again, just keep in mind that what they're doing is scuttling around not and, and you know preemptively shutting down a conversation about uh, wages primarily uh, through the use of the notwithstanding clause and you know trying to get that runaround going. But uh, there is a genuine need that the union is trying to to um, fulfill. And as for the government, well, they've always, as you both noted, played hardball with the public sector, be it education or other workers. So that's not entirely surprising either. Um, also worth noting, as you mentioned, those inflation numbers, the fact is that doesn't even factor in the cost of housing. That doesn't get factored into the inflationary numbers. And we know what's happened to housing, especially in places like Ottawa, the GTA, Kingston, basically the St. Lawrence and Lake Ontario corridor uh, since 2012. It's been massive, right? So it's very, very difficult. Also worth noting, people like custodians, that's a pretty vitally important job in schools, especially over the course of the last couple of years when kids were in class with the extended and and heightened uh, expectations of cleanliness. And I think because we are a network that broadcasts to people with disabilities or with that as a target in mind, um, EAs, education assistants, are a critical piece Mm -hmm. of spec ed, like a massive, massive piece of spec ed in terms of any kind of individualized education plans for students. EAs are disproportionately represented in spec ed classrooms. They're a critical piece of the special education of the special education wheels. So that is we definitely cannot leave this conversation without noting that. But now we get in to the notwithstanding clause looming over all of this. I want to note that even though I played that clip from Federal Minister Lametti, a few times as the notwithstanding clause has been brandished around in the last couple of years, the federal government has says, oh, we'll look into that, and then never does. I'm specifically looking at Quebec with their language and culture laws. The federal government said, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to take a look, and then didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to say the federal government is going to keep talking about this. I don't ex- actually expect them to step in. Michelle, where do you what do you think? Yeah, uh, th- another example of, of time when, when the use of the notwithstanding clause raised concerns and no action was taken. It was actually in Ontario a few years back. Remember when Doug Ford uh, cut the size of Toronto City Council in half in the middle of an election mm-hmm, campaign? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was another instance where the clause was invoked and uh, everything just went along as 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 the government hoped it would. Um, but this one is, is really interesting. And I suspect if there is going to be one that's going to garner some more attention, this might be it. Because this one absolutely does have very clear national implications in ways that perhaps the other issues did not. Those were pretty well re- confined within the realms of the provinces where they were taking place. The implications for it, um, while the, you could make good arguments for, for their application more broadly, this one I think is a little more direct and tangible and easier for people to get their heads around because this is going to affect big labor everywhere or at least potentially could and this is everyone's concern is that by by invoking the notwithstanding clause from the outset you're essentially shutting down all potential routes to negotiation and saying yeah you know what we're we're, we're just not going to do that it's not going to happen we're taking away what is essentially a constitutionally protected right you do have a right to strike this is something that is enshrined in the constitution as is of course is the notwithstanding clause so you have forces that are at odds and opposing ones at that so it's it's very it's very difficult around what this could spell for big labor, but it really does have a lot of people concerned around the country. And for that reason, if anyone 
if, if any particular issue might uh, fire up the conversation around the notwithstanding clause, this could be it. But that said, and we're going to get there, I'm I suspect if I were constitutional I, modifications are a really, really thorny area and not one that anyone is keen to touch. If I were speaking to a classroom of second year law students and believe me, they keep me away from those kinds of people <laughs> because they have potential and they know I could <laughs> stifle it. I would tell them you should be focusing on constitutional law over the last couple of years of your law degree because there may be some opportunities for you over the course yeah. of the next few years. Uh, Joita, before I wander too far down a different rabbit hole, what do you make of this looming over the notwithstanding clause, the federal government, and maybe some of the larger implications? Yeah, I think Michelle summed up a lot of it really well. We know that the uh, the Charter guarantees a freedom of association, and that's really what, uh, although it doesn't expressly say in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that you have the right to go on strike, um, the freedom of association language is what unions rely on to support the right to strike. And this is a way to uh, get around that. It's also a way to scuttle uh, union negotiations and labor tactics. And as Michelle pointed out, it's a way to um, it has a broader national implications. So it definitely goes beyond Ontario. I, I think one of the things that it needs to be mentioned here is also that um, Doug Ford has been very um, loosey-goosey, for lack of a better word, uh, with the use of the notwithstanding clause. It was meant to be used very rarely in mm -hmm. exceptions, but we've seen it used in Toronto to uh, reduce the number of city councillors, to challenge third-party advertising during the elections, and now this is the, the latest application of the notwithstanding clause. And so there are broader implications for our, our democratic rights and freedoms, because the more you use the notwithstanding clause, the more one tends to make the argument that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is meaningless. Uh, and so you asked also about the federal government. Now, we know uh, that there is a precedent of using the notwithstanding clause in labor disputes. We saw this in Saskatchewan in 1986 when they used it uh, during a labor dispute to order workers back to work. Um, it's it's not that the situation that we see in Ontario has no precedent whatsoever, but I would be curious uh, whether there's ever been a precedent or an antecedent to exactly what it is that we're seeing right now. I'm not a constitutional expert and I, I don't have enough history uh, to get into this, but I think the implications are deeply worrying. You asked about uh, the federal government and the federal government has come out and criticized the government in, for the use of the notwithstanding clause. Um, but, uh, you know, the, you know, Trudeau phoned Doug Ford and said it was inappropriate and not appropriate. Uh, but you've had columnists and others like Andrew Coyne, who writes the Globe and Mail, talk about the fact that the Constitution does give the federal government something called the right to disallowance, which means they can veto the notwithstanding clause. The problem is they're not going to do that because it will cause a furor. Uh, you know, yeah. if they do that in Quebec, if they turn around and veto Quebec's <clears throat> use of the notwithstanding clause, it's going to fan separatist feelings. So if they leave Quebec alone and they go after Ontario and say, we're going to veto your use of the notwithstanding clause, that's going to mean that hackles are going to go up. What's the federal go government going to do? They're going to complain. But I suspect it is highly unlikely, despite tremendous pressure from some sectors on the federal government, that will actually open up the constitutional debate and meaningfully 
visit, uh, revisit, I suppose, the notwithstanding clause in any significant way or exercise the powers that they do have because they don't want to get into a contentious relationship with any of the provinces. I, I do want to offer one more piece of context just before we go to break. Last Friday, I know, Friday news dumps, these things get lost in the mix. The Supreme Court of Canada decided not to hear an appeal against a Manitoba law that mandated a wage freeze on public sector workers. Now, the Supreme Court does not have to justify why they don't hear an appeal, but the choice not to hear the appeal does indicate that even the courts might be sympathetic to a mandated contract or a back-to-work clause, thus kind of further creating that that landmark of being like, why do you have to use this when the courts may even be in your favor? But guys, we are going to run flat out of time if we don't move on from here. I just do want to reflect at least one thought here in regards to parents. Yes, they are indeed caught in the middle, but that's what happens in the world Mm -hmm. of labor strife. And thank Mm -hmm. God I do not have kids. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.